0: Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the privilege and honor it is to be able to gather together with your people and to worship your name, to be able to celebrate your goodness and faithfulness, and yet, Father, at the same time, to be able to grieve with those who grieve. Thank you, Father, for this great church and the special way in which you have used it in countless lives. Father, all over the world, and especially in my own life. Father, I would not be doing much of what I am doing now if it wasn't for your sovereign hand through Lake Avenue. And those aren't just nice words, but I mean them, Father. They are words that are true. Now, Father, I do pray on this Father's Day that you would open up our hearts to receive your word. That the seed of your word would fall on good ground, that it would take roots in our hearts, that it would, Father, bear much fruit. Show us, Lord, what your word has to say about fathering. Draw us to yourself. Use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, what a great honor and joy it is for Corey and I to be back home. It is a delight to be with you on this Father's Day, and let me just say happy, happy Father's Day to you. Uh, as I said in my prayer, and so I say yet again, uh, I am just grateful to God for the incredible way in which he has used you and this church in my own heart and life and in the life of, of our of our family, in fact, uh, just the other day, uh, Evan Headley, I mean of you know him, he is ninety nine years old. I believe. Um, I just kind of chuckled as he sent me an email, and in the email, he requested I call him on his cell phone <laughs> and Evan is a dear, dear brother in the Lord in fact, uh, he when I came here, Corey and I were engaged, and he and his wife really. Uh, God used them to speak into our relationship and set our marriage on a, on a great trajectory. Um, I came here with a lot of hurt, a lot of uh, wounds, and that's a whole nother story. Uh, a lot of it was some immaturity on my part, but uh, I was working at a great church on the other side of town, Inglewood, uh, Faithful Central Bible Church. In fact, in just a few moments after service, I'll be spending Father's Day afternoon with uh, what I call to be my second dad, Bishop Kenneth Ulmer, uh, over at his house, and I just thought I'd be in uh, his church for a long time, a um, large chocolate church, and uh, thought I would be there, and then God calls me to come here, and I came here in a lot of ways uh, kicking and screaming after Roger Bosch had uh, wined me and dined me at the hat, and um, <laughs> yeah, still have heartburn over that pastramo. <laughs> So, uh, but came here, and I I tell you, and I, I just mean this, never have I felt so loved by a body of people, and God used you in my heart and life. Big time. Caught a vision to plant a multi-ethnic church, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7. Wanted to see that now, didn't want to have to wait until I died and my wife collected the life insurance for me to experience that. I wanted to be able to experience that now. And so we went to Memphis, Tennessee and uh, planted a church. In fact, we start with 26 people. In those early days, I actually remember a conversation uh, in which the guy handling our finances said, you're not going to make payroll this week and uh, just cried out to God, asked God to meet our needs kind of in the same way he met people's needs like George Mueller and other great men and women of the faith. And lo and behold, I go to my mailbox two days later, and there's a check from one of you all, unsolicited. Hey, God, put you on my heart, made out to our church for $25,000. So if it wasn't for you and your generosity... And now that church has just grown um, five services. Um, It's just flourishing. And now I'm in New York City church asked me to do what we did in Memphis in New York City it's an existing church about 3,000 people and they've asked me to lead them and with the specific charge of seeing this church in New York City reflect the diversity of God's global family and so that's what we are there doing Trinity Grace Church one church 12 locations so I'm trying to get my my arms and mind around that have my bride here today Corey stand up one more time sweetheart met her at our old church, Faithful Central, right after she got saved and decided to disciple her. So, um, (laughs) glad you laughed at that. Um, If you have your uh, Bibles, please meet me in Deuteronomy chapter 6 on this Father's Day. As I was praying for what can I share with you by way of encouragement, Deuteronomy 6 came to mind. Beginning in verse 4, this is the great Shema passage of Scripture. It's called that the Hebrew word Shema means to hear. First word in our text is the word hear, Hebrew word Shema. And listen to what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be not just on your mouth or in your head, but they shall be on your heart. You shall, verse 7, teach them diligently... To your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I, I want to talk about fathering for a time you cannot see. Also, thank you to Dr. Waybright and his leadership and the way he's blessed our our family. So grateful to God for him. Jonathan Edwards has been called America's greatest theologian. I'll let you debate kind of the veracity of that claim, but what can't be denied is is his impact and influence continues to have a rippling effect even to this point today. Much has been made about an early period in Jonathan Edwards' life. He lived in the 18th century, and as a young man, he wrote a series of resolutions guiding principles that would uh, shape his character and his convictions Uh, later on in life jonathan edwards would become a pastor of a church there in new england and god would use him greatly as sunday in and sunday out this great man of god would proclaim the word of god and and god would use him to inspire his people in fact, he used them so much that it was Jonathan Edwards who was kind of at the forefront of an awakening that swept through our nation, a, a revival of sorts. It was Jonathan Edwards in his classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that God used to draw so many people to faith. And repentance, God used this man. He would write prolific books and he would go on to serve as a uh, a college president there at Princeton. And yet for all of these incredible things, to know Jonathan Edwards is to be more impressed with who he was in private than with who he was in public. In fact, one of the ways you would have been impressed with Jonathan Edwards was he was an incredible dad. If you want proof of this, uh, look, for example, uh, at at a study that was unveiled on Jonathan Edwards uh, towards the turn of the 19th century into the 20th century. Jonathan Edwards, there was an individual who was enamored with his life. Jonathan had been dead for decades by now. And this individual asked the question, what happened to the progeny of Jonathan Edwards? What happened to his children and his descendants? And this man did some research and here's what he discovered. Look at it with me on the screen. The marriage of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had produced, this is by the 20th century, one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries, uh, all of them having professed faith in Jesus Christ. Wow. Now I know what you're thinking Um, this is not a message in which I'm going to give you a recipe in how you can have that. So I I just want you to understand, it's it's a truth. We cannot manufacture great, godly kids. Our kids have free will. Corey and I were introduced to that truth when they hit about 2, and reminded of it when they hit 13. You can't manufacture that. In fact, I love what one pastor says, we parents tend to take too much credit when our kids turn out right, and too much blame when they don't. Corey and I are learning that we cannot let our self-esteem rise and fall on the performance of our kids. There's got to be a, what a friend of mine calls a bit of gospel distance between the performance of my kids and my self-esteem. In fact, if I were to let my self-esteem rise and fall on the performance of my kids, God's got to be going to counseling every week. So rest easy. This is not a message on how to have that but yet I am curious is there some universal principles that I can extract from this what do I learn from Jonathan Edwards that will create a greenhouse for unleashing into our culture strong vibrant godly men and women from our home? Jonathan, what did you do? Answer, it is said of Jonathan Edwards that every single day you could find him praying for his kids and his children's children through the fifth generation, their spouses included. Jonathan, what did you do? Prayed. I love what my dad says. I was asking my dad, I think the world of him as a man and as a dad. I said, Dad, just give me some helpful tips on parenting. I love what he says. He says, Son, I did most of my parenting on my knees. Next question. What drives a man, a dad, to pray daily for his kids and their future spouses through the fifth generation? Answer took the family seriously the first institution god ever creates is not government the first institution god ever creates is not even the church the first institution god creates Genesis chapter 2, it is the family. In fact, I love what Pope John Paul II has to say about family. Look at it with me. He said, the family is the domestic church. Roland Hines, good to see you. God has put the hopes and dreams of cultural transformation not on your kid's youth pastor... Brian, I need to to be reminded God has not called me to outsource Quentin, Miles, and Jaden's spiritual development on Trinity Grace Church's youth pastor. I own that. Grandparents, God hasn't just called you to spoil. My parents turned into complete strangers when my kids came along. We used to call my mother Law and my dad Grace. We were scared of mom growing up. Mama didn't play. I remember once getting a paddling in the produce section of the grocery store for throwing oranges back and forth with my brother. Now my kids come along and this woman that I thought I knew said, Oh, I couldn't touch those babies. I loved it. One time, they had just moved into their house a couple years ago, and my kids were real small, and Miles decided to do some, my son decided to do some artwork on their wall in their brand new house. I'm going, this is good. You're going to see a different side of Mimi right now. I just can't wait. Didn't quite happen. Mimi went to Target, got a frame, and put it over his artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Grandparents, have fun but we need you to pass the baton. We need you over fresh-baked cookies and pancakes to point them to Jesus. I need not depress you with what you already know. God's hope, God's dream for the world, family, is in great trouble all over the world and especially here. A new, recent New York Times um, article says that we are experiencing what this writer calls a marriage apocalypse. What this author means in this New York Times article is that, by and large, the younger generation, the millennials, are wholesale giving up on marriage. They're turning their back. In fact, in 2011, for the first time in the history of our nation, the marriage rate decreased while the cohabitation rate increased. The reason they speculate, among many, is there are a deficit of strong, vibrant men in our culture. In fact, in this article, they say that we are in an age of extended adolescence. Let me give you a definition of adolescence. Write it down. Adolescence is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Let me give that to you one more time. Adolescence is wanting the privileges of adulthood without the responsibilities. Because of that, sociologists tell us adolescence has extended to age 35. I meet them all the time. They come to my church. 30-somethings, no ambition in life, sitting at home, their mom and dad's home, on their mom and dad's sofa, playing video games all day in their Star Wars jammies. No drive, no ambition. At the same time, I've got this huge, huge supply of Strong, godly women who are asking, "Where are the godly men?" The recipe for creating kind of these extended adolescence I've seen it over and over again it's coddling moms, passive fathers. It's over-nurturing moms and passive dads who won't give their kids the gift of struggle. The greatest gift uh, my dad ever gave me was the gift of struggle. So where did the strength come from for me to plant a church? It came from a dad who wouldn't give me everything. Who refused to play the role of Jesus in my life. Who acknowledged I have one Savior and dad wasn't it. I could riff on that for days, and yet the reality is, God says when we come to our text, Israel, I am sending you into a land filled with pagans, filled with people who don't believe what you believe, who who do things differently, who are walking in sin, who worship false gods. I, I want you there. Now just think about that. I don't want you to be scared of them. I don't want you to stick your your, your head in a hole in the ground. I want you there. I want you rubbing shoulders with them. I want you to be in the midst of them. I, I want you in that context. And yet I want you there so that you would transform that culture for my glory. I want you to exercise dominion and authority in that culture. I want you to be more salt and light to them than they are to you. And the way I'm going to do that is through the family. I don't want to discourage single moms parenthetically. Some of you are here. It was an act of grace to get here today. Don't be discouraged. We see all throughout the Scriptures God raising up godly kids in spite of the absence of death. That's Timothy's story. God can hit a straight lick even with a crooked stick. And yet God's hope is for the family. Well, Brian, what do I do as a dad? What, is it do? what do I do as a granddad? How can I help create a greenhouse? Let me give you three things. When we only got through two of them first hour. Let me give you three of them. Uh, number one is simply what I would call authentic Modeling. Verse four, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. I love it. Verse six, and these words that I command you today shall be not in your head, not just on your mouth, but on your heart. Who's he talking to? Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children. And so, verse seven, the very fact that he says, "I want you to teach these things to your kids," tells us that as he's positioning the family for cultural influence, he's beginning not with the. Kids, Kids, but with the parents. What God is saying as He's talking to parents, He says, Look, I want this stuff to be in your heart as you lead your kids. God is saying, Before I get to your kids, let me get to you as parents. This thing is going to only work if you model for your kids the very thing I want your children to embody. It's Leadership 101. You cannot take a person to a place you have not been yourself. So growing up, I was a huge Chicago Bears fan. Love the Bears. Walter Payton was my guy. Love Walter Payton. I loved Walter Payton so much, this running back. I did the unthinkable. I ate Wheaties. Now, if you've ever eaten Wheaties, you understand. That's horrible cereal. It gets soggy inside of two seconds. Wheaties will not be served at the Feast of the New Covenant. I'm sure of that one. (laughs) Love Wheaties. But hey, Walter Payton was on the cover of the Wheaties box, he ate Wheaties, so I'm going to eat Wheaties because that's my guy. And so you can imagine how excited I was when my dad came to me one day and says, look, the Bears are in town playing the Falcons, we were living in Atlanta, and, and the chaplain asked me to, to give the chapel message, game day morning, Sunday morning, do you want to come? Do I? Unbelievable. Absolutely. Couldn't sleep the night before. So excited. I'm going to meet Walter Payton. I'm going to be there. So I, I go with my dad. Dad gives this message. At the end of the message, the chaplain says, hey, do you want to eat breakfast with the team, do we? Are you kidding me? And in the sovereignty of God, he allowed me to be at the table with Walter Payton. And what I see, I don't like. Because at the breakfast table, Walter Payton ain't eating Wheaties. He's eating Raisin Bran. Now this is messing with me because you know, I've taken up my cross and I've been eating Wheaties and I've been enduring because that's what my guy does and you mean to tell me you're eating raisin bran? You've you got to tell me something, Mr. Peyton, Mr. Sweetness, you've got to tell me something. And so here I'm 9, 10 years old. I'm like, uh, gotta kinda just call him on the carpet we'd have a come to Jesus conversation what's going on and so I muster up the courage Mr. Payton, Mr. Payton I eat Wheaties cause you eat Wheaties but you're not eating Wheaties you're eating Razor Bran, why are you eating Razor Bran I'll never forget his response oh kid, I hate that stuff <laughs> I don't eat Wheaties I'm devastated I never eat Wheaties again Because at a young age, it hit me. All Wheaties was to Walter Payton was a paycheck. All Wheaties was was a platform, a marketing ploy to extend his brand. I'm devastated because my hero wasn't even buying what he was selling Dads, are you buying what you're selling? This is not about flowery devotions, and some of us, man, we, we cower from that because we think we have to have an M div. The most powerful thing you can ever do is <laughs> just live it. So, you know, my direct line. It all starts with me, with my great-great-grandfather Peter, slave, worked the plantations, Asheville, North Carolina, family that owned him, leads him to faith in Jesus Christ, and emancipation happens, they give, this family that owned us, give Peter, my great-great-grandfather, 300 acres of land, my great-great-grandfather, Jesus-loving, illiterate man, and yet, according to family tradition, he memorizes almost the whole New Testament, how does that happen? According to family tradition, he would rock back and forth in his rocking chair, having his kids read to him from the same section of scripture over and over and over again. And that not only got the word into him, that got the word into them. And all of his kids came to know the Lord. And that began a godly legacy where, did you know in my direct line, there's no such thing as a man who didn't love Jesus or a man who got divorced. Where does that happen? It happens with an illiterate slave, no of degree, no sophisticated theologian. He just says, I'm going to live it. I'm going to eat my Wheaties. I'm going to make sure that I'm buying what I'm selling. The moment my wife and kids can no longer sit on the front row and listen to dad preach because they're seeing a guy selling something he ain't buying I'm in trouble. God says hopes and dreams on the family I'm ushering you into this pagan society you want a strong vibrant family dad's Make sure these words I'm commanding you today are here. Second thing, how do I create a greenhouse? I understand I cannot manufacture godly kids, but I can create an environment. One, authentic modeling, two, active engagement. You don't need a degree in Hebrew to figure this out. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall watch it now. Talk of them when you sit in your house, walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. it shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. All of this assumes the underlying current to all of it is, I'm just spending time with my kids. That's all it is. This stuff happens life on life. Now, I want you to feel attention here. On one extreme, God is not greenlighting we parents to deify our kids. He's not saying, make your kids the center of your world. It was Tim Keller who, who, who taught us Put words to it that an idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. An idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. If that's the case, then my kids can become my idol. How do I do that? When I make the kids the center of my world. That's sin. God does not want your kids to be the center of your world. In fact, it's counterintuitive. If you make your kids the center of your world, you're actually setting them up for failure. So we make little Johnny the center of our world. Johnny turns 18, drops him off at college. Johnny, it hits him. Oh, I'm not the center of the world. So let me go back to the one place where I was the center of the world. And so now if I can just play with Scripture, we no longer have arrows being released into the culture. We have boomerangs. doesn't mean you've got to be at every single game that your kids have. One of the greatest gifts my dad ever had for you. My dad told me, point blank, I ain't coming to all your games. Why, Dad? Well, those cleats that you wear, someone's got to pay for it. I pay for it by going to work. Was Dad supportive? Yes. Was he there? Yes. Did he come to everything? No. And at the same time, what he communicated to me was not the center. Recently, I got asked to speak at a conference in Dubai, and um, they graciously provided an airplane ticket for uh, one of our family members to come. And so after praying for a long time about whether or not I should preach the gospel in Dubai, um, I, I decided to take my wife with me. And my, one of my kids was like, no fair. Mom gets to go to all the best places. Why does mom get to go? I said, because I actually love her more than I love you. <laughs> God, Mom, you. You're actually third. <laughs> we laugh, but honestly, that's true. I've counseled empty nesters on the brink of divorce. have been married 20, 30, 40-something years. And you go, how's that happen?" Well, here's how it happened. Everything in the marriage was not here. It was... Downward at the kids, and the last one leaves, and so now they just drop the kid off, and they're sitting at P.F. Chang's. You ever seen a middle-aged couple with nothing to say to each other? Making the kids the center of your world, it's actually sin, cripples the kid and is not conducive for a great marriage. On the other hand, one extreme, God is saying, I'm not telling you to deify your kids. Don't deify them, but I am saying, spend time with them. And when you spend time with them, make sure you're pointing them to me pointing them to the cross. They need to hear that I've sent my son and my son lived the life you could not live and died the death you should have died. They need to hear that stuff over and over again. Why? Because we have a small window of time. My oldest runs a 200 meter relay and you know, I just, as a pastor, I'm just, I'm really careful because my kids are in this fishbowl and so every chance i get to have them coach me i'm always asking for their advice and so i remember just quentin is just working in this kind of the handoff thing and the relay for the 200 meter relay and i'm just asking quentin now talk to me about the handoff the passing of the baton he goes dad actually you've got a small space of time to do that i said so if you don't hand it off within that length of time, even though that other person grabs it. I go, what happens? Because you're actually disqualified. You've you got to do it in that narrow window. And I'm going, that's parenting. i got a small window with my boys before they leave the house at 18. Um, <laughs> as one sociologist said, we don't have as much influence for as long as we think we have it. It says, boys, once they start smelling perfume and gasoline... <laughs> pass that baton. Grandparents, I encourage you to read the book of Genesis from a grandparent perspective. Uh, the section with the patriarchs from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50... The common theme of patriarchs, those grandparents, they're constantly retelling stories of the faithfulness of God. They're passing that thing on. Finally, how can I create this greenhouse? Authentic modeling, active engagement. (laughs) I love this one, so deep. Repetitive teaching. You shall, verse 7, teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign of your hand. Are you getting what he's saying here? Keep talking. Play that one song on repeat. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Just keep talking till they're sick of it. Keep talking wherever you are. Repeat the message of God's faithfulness. God forgive some of us parents who are more diligent in training an animal. Or more diligent in training in athletics. We are just pointing them to Christ. Telling that story. Create a greenhouse for the aroma of the Word of God. I close with these two stories. A guy who has been mentoring me for the last 12 years on fatherhood, and this guy named Dennis Rainey, you may have heard of him. If you walk into Dennis Rainey's house... I mean, he just, he takes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 seriously. The word is just plastered all over the place. I love it. You sit down in his living room, huge TV, underneath of it, it's a verse from uh, one of the Psalms, I will not set before my eyes any worthless thing. Wow. One of the first things you see when you walk into Dennis's house is huge bats mounted on the wall, two words engraved in it, respect her. Then all these signatures. Says Dennis, what's that? He goes, man, I got four daughters. They've all left the house, but when they were in high school, if a guy wanted to take them out, he had to be interviewed by me first. And he'd come over, and I'd, you know, take out the Bible, and I'd share with him principles from Scripture on dating, and I'd set down what those principles would be. And if he agreed to it, we prayed together, and he signed the bat. Like that. What you got from him is. Every chance I get to draw people to the Word of God, to create an environment. Any of you ever heard the name Alfred Nobel? Alfred woke up one morning, he was grieving, and he's grieving because his brother Ludwig had unexpectedly died. So here he is the next day at the breakfast table, and he's flipping through the newspapers and to his shock the newspaper reporter had gotten it wrong he thought alfred had died and not ludwig so he wrote alfred's obituary true story so here's alfred reading his obituary this guy who invented dynamite and the title of the obituary says merchant of death dies and it pretty much goes on to say good Alfred sat there and goes, this is what people think of me. This is my legacy. He says, I need to change that. He takes a large sum of money, starts a foundation to award individuals who promote peace. Chances are, when I said Alfred Nobel, you didn't first think dynamite, you thought peace. Can I bless you with this? What Alfred Nobel teaches us is it's never too late to change your legacy. I need to hear that. I've said the wrong stuff to my kids. I've said it the wrong way. Constantly having to come before God and my kids to confess and repent of my sin. It's not too late you can make up your mind today even if you're writing child support payments and splitting custody you can make up your mind today change your legacy if you're a dad I'd love to pray for you as we close would you just stand if you feel led as a dad I'd Love to just say a word of prayer over you as we end this message. Granddad, Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you. Fatherhood is not for the weak, and yet, oh, how we feel so weak at times. God, I pray over these dads who are standing and granddads and great granddads. And God, I pray that you would strengthen them. Some of us as dads, we're right there, right now. Think of, of fathering, Lord God. Our children are still under our roof, Lord God. We're in the bunker and God, we just need grace. We need strength. We need courage. I pray for all of us as we stand, Lord God. I pray that the words you are commanding us today would be on our hearts. I pray that we would eat our Wheaties. I pray, Lord God, that we would buy what we are selling. I pray for a wonderful sense of authenticity and integrity in our parenting, Lord God. And when there is a breach in that, and there will be, that we would be quick to confess of our sins. God, we appeal to you as that patient, everlasting Father. Who, Lord God, models to us what real fatherhood is all about. Father, I do pray that we would engage in the life of our kids on the one hand we don't want to deify them father but on the on the other hand lord god we we want to show up and we want to be a part and we want to invest in their lives and while we're doing that we want to repetitively over and over again point them to jesus one who died on the cross for our sins and who offers us hope in a future god would you do that To that end, Lord God, that you and your graciousness would unleash from our homes. Godly women and godly men, Father God, who make a difference in this world. Not because we were perfect, Lord God, we're not. But because we leaned on your grace, the grace of a good father. And you met us in that place. Thank you for this time. Christ's name, amen.